This is Monica Perez with a returning guest you all know and love, Jeremy Kuzmarov, author of four books on U.S. foreign policy, including The Russians Are Coming Again, The First Cold War as Tragedy, The Second as Farce. As managing editor of Covert Action Magazine, Jeremy and his team are keeping us apprised of the real stories behind the biggest events of the day. And as much as I respect Jeremy and his work, I do recognize that our ideologies are completely different. Jeremy thinks government's legit, and I have given up on the state completely. But in a post-ideological world of corruption and collusion, people of principle can still find common ground. So thank you, Jeremy, for joining me again as we find common ground. How are you? Oh, pretty good. Very good, thank you. And this is actually extremely relevant for your most recent uh, activist endeavor. Didn't you just come back from the rage against the war in Ukraine? And uh, that was quite a meeting of different people on the political spectrum, but all coming together in the anti-war movement. Yeah, I think it was really a terrific event. Uh you know, there was a really nice spirit there, and hopefully it's the beginning uh, of a um, revitalized anti-war movement. And yeah, there were a few naysayers, you know, I, I think some people on the left didn't want to associate with people on the right, but I think the best line of the day was Jimmy Dore, the comedian, uh, who said, you know, if there's a fire uh, raging in your house, yeah, and the firefighters come to put it out. You're not going to quiz them, you know, his view about gay gay rights or transgender <laughs> or, you know, stuff. I mean, those, in any way, they elevate those policies and they want to divide people. Yeah, Dora also said, you know, uh, they want, that's the game of the oligarchy. They want you to hate your neighbor uh, because he didn't get a vaccine or, uh, you know, whatever side you're on, you know, he's like a, a liberal, uh, you know, he's a... Uh, you know, the conservatives, you know, are kind of uh, indoctrinated in many ways to hate liberals and think they're all, you know, he said not all liberals love Nancy Pelosi or Chuck Schumer. And he said not all conservatives uh, are these, you know, white nationalists, uh, Trumper, you know, gun nuts. But he said only gun nuts. I, I mean, know. That was so funny that they are all gun nuts. That is yeah. true. And uh, <laughs> that is true, though. It was very, well, very clever. Well, if they're clever. not going to shoot you, it shouldn't bother you too much. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I did notice that you t- touch on something that I have all really have observed for a long time now. And that is if, if say, 50, 60, 70, 80 million people in this country are on the left and that same number almost, give or take, 10%, 20%, 25%, I don't care, but there's tens of millions of people on the other side are you really thinking that the people on the other side are evil assholes, like idiots and jerks? They're all idiots and jerks. And I actually did a little experiment. I tried to see if people in my life who, uh, I think it was driving. I was like, I just want to watch and see because if people on the left or the right are like completely irrational or evil or whatever, they should all be terrible at everything. Like the bad ones should be bad drivers. They should be rude. They should, you know, cancel appointments. Like they should do everything bad and wrong. And I found that I really couldn't, I mean, I do think that like super religious people who dedicate their lives to charity, like they will be there for you. They'll do all good Samaritan. But in regular rank and file, like the ideology, I really feel like is probably related to how your brain is made up more than if you're a good person or a bad person and hating the people on the other side, it really could go a lot further to just try to understand them a little bit. 
Absolutely, yeah. I, I think a lot of politics also comes from your background, you know, your life experiences, uh, the area you may have grown up, your education, the kind of courses you may have been exposed to, books you read. So, you know, uh, I think there are good people on all sides. And uh, I mean, personally, I agree a lot, libertarian, on a lot of issues, like you know, with regard to civil liberty, you know, drugs. So, uh, on some issues I disagree, like, you know, social welfare program, but I mean, that's life. You're always going to disagree. I disagree. I used to argue with my father of the Israeli Palestine. He was kind of stubborn on that issue. Eventually he came around, but really, I didn't hate him. You know, it was just one issue on a lot of other issues. I didn't, you know, uh, a similar political outlook as him. So uh, you know, I didn't hate him because on that issue we disagreed. So, and that was point. Like, why do you why do you hate? I mean, most America, you know, he was saying it's really the oligarchy. I mean, we should be unified politically. It's the one percent, the oligarchy, that's you know destroying American society. That's pitting us against each other. That's waging these senseless war. That's squandering our our national treasures on these senseless wars. So, if we have an enemy, it should be those people in power. At the top one percent, not your neighbor, uh, whatever kind of community you live, if he has a slightly different viewpoint as you. I do think that the Constitution makes room for this, just simply by putting all that, uh, you know, the police, it, all the police powers or whatever. But it includes welfare and health and everything. All that stuff goes to the states. Now, I don't know too many people on the left who are for states' rights, but. There is the possibility there of having petri dishes, like fifty different organizations of how you deal with the the everyday culture and society. But where it comes to the traditional or the constitutional roles of the federal government, from foreign policy to like national, um, you know, having marriage laws or whatever on a national level, it's it's not necessary. But we could. There's no ideological difference, really, there shouldn't be about foreign policy, like what American left or right should really want imperialism, because that's what it really comes down to. It's not defensive when nobody has the capacity to hurt you. Syria really does not have the capacity to hurt us. We should not be bombing Syria. It's immoral for the right should think of it as immoral and the left should think of it as, as, as immoral and unconstitutional and everything else. I don't understand why it's so hard. I mean, they just have a, a, a stranglehold on our minds that the politicians to make us to convince us that any of these wars are in our interest. That's right. Yeah. It's not really an issue of right left. It's an issue of right versus wrong. <laughs> yes. And luckily there are a lot of people who see what's right. Unfortunately, as you say, a lot of people have been kind of brainwashed by the incessant propaganda and the media and the education system. So it's our job uh, to try and educate the public better or people we're, we're in contact with. Yeah. So what when you were at the protest, did you, first of all, was there hostility by anybody? Did any counter protests arrive or people rude to you? Do you felt like you were undermined? Was it, um, did you get the kind of turnout that you wanted? Is it a first step? Tell us more about the actual event. Okay, well, uh, I uh, I was in the crowd, and then I went in the press area where I was able to interview some of the people, the speakers. Um, so that was nice, and get, you know, uh, close-up photos of them. I didn't see, apparently there were a small number of demonstrators. I didn't see them. They weren't visible. And I could see when I went to the press area, 
I could see the whole crowd. I didn't see them all of these counter demonstrators. Though somebody told me they were there, but there were just like three or four of them, you know, pro-Ukrainians. So it, it was a very <laughs> oh. yeah, it was just like maybe you know a couple. Uh, less than uh, under a dozen, you know, maybe less than half a dozen, I think, just like one or two odd people with a, a counter, apparently, but I didn't see them. Uh, you know, the speakers, yeah, a lot of them you couldn't tell. You know, I, I didn't recognize every speaker, and if I look some up, they may have been libertarian, but they were basically say, saying a lot of the same as the more the speakers would be identified more left-wing, so that's what I mean. They're not really huge differences. I, I mean, I think everybody at the rally would want to see the government investing its resources in the needs of the uh, domestic population and on the senseless wars that in this case, and, and every uh, many of the speakers said, I mean, this is really dangerous. This is, uh, you know, we're on the threshold of potential nuclear war because of this. Uh, uh, and, you know, Tulsi Gabbard in her speech, I thought gave a very good speech. And she said, you know, we're all united. This rally, everybody's united in one thing. You know, we value human life. We want to see uh, human life, you know, our lives, our, our friends, our family, and the people of Ukraine and Eastern Europe, we value their life too. We don't want them dying in a war that's avoidable. And I think this war was avoidable. You know, Roger Waters uh, gave the speech at the end, you know, Pink Floyd, and he went into how this war could have been prevented. Very easily, all they had to do was, you know, there was a promise that NATO wouldn't expand one inch eastward. All they had to do was, uh, you know, uh, successive governments of the United States just follow what James Baker had promised Gorbachev. They didn't do that. And then he's like, well, all they had to do is just allow Ukrainians to decide their own government, not interfere and back a coup in 2014. That's going to screw everything, you know, anger the Russian. I mean, you overthrow the pro-Russian regime. Uh, and that uh, triggered a war in eastern Ukraine, brought in the Russian. And he's like, well, then you had the Minsk agreement. All you have to do is support <laughs> the Minsk agreement. So, I mean, there were just some easy steps, you know, uh, that could have been followed, common sense to avoid this cataclysm. But there's obviously, you know, the, and that's a divide. I think the most of the American population, if they knew and understood all the facts, almost universally would support those measures. But then you have an elite one percent, and you know corporate uh, elite who's so greedy, and they want to dominate the world, and they can't tolerate any rival. You know, the minute, minute Russia starts to look a little stronger, uh, and, you know, back to you know, I mean, Russia was a regional power for many centuries, and they're starting to look like their old self a little bit, regain some power after the '90s. That's when the U.S. can't tolerate that, so they they start sabotaging the Russians and, and basically causing this conflict or they you know they want to uh, exploit all the oil for themselves in the central asia they can't tolerate russia having some uh control or some of the oil you know they're the natural leader in that area uh, so i mean it's just the greed uh of the one percent uh carrying out policies that are against humanity basically and that's why people have to unify on, on behalf of humanity and it's not really an issue of left or right i mean the normal give and take of politics could continue, but people have to unify uh, to stop this insanity. And I would think that 
when you said, well, everybody there would rather them spend this money on some of our domestic problems, you could even go further and say, OK, maybe only the left like that. Even me, I'm like, I, I don't know. I, I believe in limited governments and I don't want the federal budget to be so big at all. I want my tax money back. Either way, neither side should want this money spent in this way. And I would go further than than even those enumerated items from or the list from Roger Waters and say that that yes, the coup was conducted by the U.S. It was it, and over the years that was eight years ago or nine now, but eight years to the time when it was um, actually provoked Russia. But I believe I've come to believe that they intentionally provoked Russia, like actually cut off all avenues of recourse other than making it military. And I, I've read things on the Rand Corporation website that makes me think that they're that calculated and that's in that particular case. And but I uh, and yeah, I would agree with you. Yeah, yeah you could respond to that. And then I had one more thing about Tulsi Gabbard. So Tulsi Gabbard is um, a lot of people in my circles, including me, are a little bit uh, skeptical of her as I would say a limited hangout. And I never know how far down the rabbit hole you go because you're so academic and measured and well-trained and was a, te- or a teacher and all of that. You have very high standards of um, separating facts from speculation. But uh, for me, so she, she has a military background, which absolutely plenty of military people become anti-war. There's no question about that, but she's a member of the council of foreign relations, which is you know, a sister of the Chatham House and all these organizations that really do work towards world domination. Maybe she's not anymore, but she was. But I just wonder, like, say, say we don't know. We don't know what's in her heart, but we know what comes out her mouth and it's and it's valid. Like, how do you and I ask you these kind of questions a lot, but how do you think about that? Like, how do you care? Do you want to know? You want to take what you can get? Yeah, well, there are a lot of opportunists. I think people would see the moment. You know, there is uh, now a sizable anti-war block. There is a lot of unease in the population. So anybody who's bent on a political career or you know obtaining political power might try and capitalize on this moment. And as you say, you don't know. I, I don't know. Uh, there are some suspicious aspects about it. I've heard before that you know she's. I think even still active duty military and. But I don't know, you know, for sure. I mean, there could also be a smear campaign against her because she is speaking out like no other dominant political figure. And there may be an effort, you know, to spread rumors about her uh, when when she's, you know, she is speaking truth to power. And it's very rare for somebody of her stature who was in the U.S. Congress who, you know, she, I mean, she speaks very well. She's an elegant uh, woman. She speaks very well. Uh, so she has those qualities of a leader. Uh, so, I mean, she'd become dangerous to the, uh, power that be. So I don't know. It could go either way. Uh, she could be an opportunist or there could be, you know, some agenda or she could be just being subjected to a smear campaign and she's very sincere. And I, in her case, I really don't know. So I can't yeah. make any judgment, and, but. And you really can't know also if people, if some people at some point do, have integrity and maybe they are on the inside and really can't tolerate it anymore. I don't know about that. I think yeah, in the extreme happened, yeah. people will get killed as you have talked about many times. Like if they do, if they don't get the memo, if they don't read the memo and back off, but there's a time between. So you see like you do. And I want to talk about some of the more recent articles you've done on this. There are times there are plenty, plenty of assassinations. I know you have a whole series at covert action magazine 
Uh.com that talks about assassinations. I I hope and uh, that you'll put them together in a book. But there are assassinations, and there's a point between, and a lot of them, if not the majority, are insiders at some point. Like that, it's almost like the mob. Like the you're only really in danger if you're in in the circle, have firsthand knowledge or whatever. There's a point between turning away from it and getting assassinated. You know that there have to be some people who start to say stuff. So. I'm not going to write her off. I do tend to be more skeptical rather than uh, less skeptical but about any of these people. But yeah, so let's let's talk a little bit about some of your latest on the on the assassination front. I was yeah, on that point. I mean, yeah. it, it, she got more powerful. I mean, right now she's kind of on the margins. And the, I mean, she still has a following and uh, has an audience. Uh but I mean, they had their ways. You know, during the primary, I mean, they ridiculed her. They called her an Assad apologist and you know, Putin lover and those kind of uh, things. And I mean, she didn't last too long in the primary, and I think she was excluded after one or two debates. You know, and they used McCarthyist tactic to smear her, and there was some negative article in the New York Times. Uh, so that that's the usual method. I mean, if she got really, really, you know, then we had Bernie Sanders, who was challenging things in his own way and they had the ways of of removing him and kind of co-opting him so i think those are preferred methods but if somebody like her really rose high then they could be uh, a threat you know their life could start to be at risk so i've always been a big ron paul fan and supporter and i can't i can't say some people say oh yeah he's an inside job for whatever reason i mean what that would be i really don't know because there's like almost nothing yeah, he could come out and say Dick Cheney conspired to effect 9-11. Like, he could say that. I'm not sure that would be it, it, do anybody any good. But uh, so uh, after all these years of, like, really being skeptical about everyone, I just still love Ron Paul. And I was on a um, podcast the other day where the host was telling me, and I, I guess this sounds familiar, but I didn't hear it myself, that at a certain point when Ron Paul, when it actually came out that he was winning, and he did win Iowa, I don't know if, if that, if you're even aware of that, but ultimately, if you look at Wikipedia, who won the Iowa primary in 2012, it was Ron Paul, and uh, he he said at that point he stopped flying in planes and stuff. He was afraid they might kill him, they might actually kill him. And I thought, wow, yeah, like that's where you have to be, and you have to be smart enough. I think you have to be smart enough to back down. I really do. I just don't think it does any good. I don't think these assassinations ever. Um, you know, they, you never win after you get killed. They get to write the story after that. And I just, I feel like there's a certain point where you just don't even want to go too far. And that could explain why not everybody goes that far, goes as far even as Ron Paul. It's scary. I even think of Dave Chappelle. Like, I think that they told him to, you know, back off from some of the more aggressive comedy back in the day. And he, you know, whatever dropped out. And then eventually he's like, I'm not doing any good having no airtime whatsoever. I can I can do 95% of my truth or 80% of my truth and still make a living and stay alive and not do too much harm. I just, I think that there's there's only so much you can do because I feel like it's so buttoned up at the top that you can't bust through if you're too, if you're, if you speak too much truth to power. Speaking That's certainly of true, work. yeah. And I mean, at the rally, yeah. they had Dennis Kucinich, you know, he, oh, yeah, I mean, oh, he, yeah. he's an example. I mean, I think they got, you know, they did redistricting. I mean, he, he was a true, you know, progressive who spoke out against a lot, including the Democratic War. Like, I know he opposed the Libya War. I think he was one of the few 
Democrats who'd oppose the Kosovo bombing. And, you know, he was a true anti-war, anti-imperialist, and also progressive. And, I mean, he did last a fair a fair amount of time, which is amazing. So, I mean, it goes to show you could potentially, um, you know, go, you know, at least have a, 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 you know, pretty good career. But, of course, then they got rid of him. They did some redistricting, and there were, you know, forces arrayed against him, uh, certainly when he tried to run for president. And he was ousted from from the U.S. Congress, but he did last a while in the Congress, which is pretty rare. Because like figure like Bernie Sanders kind of sold out. I mean, he supported the war in Ukraine and Russia, and he you know tried to marshal his follower into the Hillary Clinton camp, and he kind of played his role. You know, he did his duty for the Democratic Party, but he kind of sold out in the process. So you know, he was a time on the outer edge. You know, of acceptability, he was taking some pretty radical position so it goes to show you yeah, it's very difficult and unfortunately i mean many of these people are careerists like they their career is number one and i mean sometimes like a guy can make if, if they have the charisma and falling of like a sanders and they're in the congress and then they're not you know they're uh, they're removed but they've got a powerful you know persona and following so they could do a lot on the outside to really build a social movement but their true colors are, are, are seen that they're out for their own career. And you get a lot of opportunists, you know, who see the tide. I mean, now the tide with the huge inequality levels and the unhappiness with the uh, U.S. foreign policy and these endless wars, opportunists are coming to fore, um, you know, but they're not necessarily sincere anti-war leaders. They're sometimes out for themselves. And I mean, even Trump now is billing himself as an anti-war person. He's uh, criticizing the, the war in Ukraine and saying he would end it, but you know he's <laughs> like given under, under, other indications other time. I mean, he just goes with whatever he thinks popular at that moment, and you get that a lot with politicians, unfortunately. Well, um, the the Trump dropped so many bombs. I thought Obama drops a lot of bombs on Syria, and I've heard recently that Trump dropped even more. But I will say about Kucinich, I was always a huge fan of his ideology aside. You know, I understand the um, mentality of people who want the government safety net. I totally understand it. And I think it depends on how cynical you are about government or the separation of a moral obligations versus the use of force. I mean, I understand the ideological divide. I always think of it as Aristotle versus Plato. We could get into that sometime. I bet you could school me on that. But uh, there was a plane ride, a famous plane ride that Kucinich took, apparently, where he got on the plane with some some you know deep staters. And when he got off the plane, like some of his opinions changed forever. And And I think that's when he probably lost his spirit to keep fighting. Like, who cares if I'm in, you know, real guy of integrity would say, who cares if I'm in power, if I get my, if I keep them from redistricting, if I, if my hands are tied, what's the point? Because I don't think he was a careerist. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's true. This guy, there's a guy who just died uh, yesterday or the last week named James Aborik. And I once interviewed him. He was the first Arab American congressman, but he, and he was very progressive on many issues, including um, Native American rights and with U.S. foreign policy, you know, opposing the Vietnam War and a lot of the clandestine operations. But yeah, he said he only served one term because he felt he couldn't get anywhere in the Senate. I mean, he wanted to do uh, advance, you know, progressive causes, but it was almost futile. And yeah, once he saw that futility, he just didn't want to uh, even continue working in the, in the Senate. 
Because then you have to really be scummy. Like then you realize. Yeah, you so then you might as well just go be like a, uh, you know, um, I don't know why I was going to say a yeah, real, he real felt estate he could agent. Do more on the outside, he was a lawyer, <laughs> and he ended up representing, yeah. you know, human rights and and civil rights cases. He felt yeah, he much could be much more positive for society because he couldn't change the view of the others in the Senate and the kind of bills he wanted to pass. He had no chance to pass and. Uh, the tide was turning. If you have, if you want to keep your seat, you really have to. You have to. Yeah. Do some shady dealings. Like it's the worst. Yeah. yeah it's like he it's didn't not want only to compromise with the donors, so he just right. felt more free trying to improve society on the outside as a lawyer. And what is he up to now? Well, he passed away the last oh. in the last week, but he was in the seventies. Yeah, he was like you know very quite well known as a progressive senator in the nineteen seventies. And he supported a lot of progressive causes, including like abolishing the CIA and, you know. Um, and Did you his, write anything about him or do you have his in, the interview? Can we repost that? Uh, well, his obituary came out in a number of uh, newspapers. I had interviewed him in 2008 because I was studying the uh, Office of Public Safety, which they ran a police training program, these uh, covert police training program, the Cold War. And he had actually passed... Uh, the act that led to the abolishing of the Office of Public Safety within USAID, and he had met Brazilian who had been tortured under these police training programs. So he did achieve some good legislation, but yeah, and he had told me in the interview that after some years he, he couldn't get anything passed, and yeah, he didn't want to kind of sell it soul. So he, he, after his first his term was up, he decided not to run for re-election, and he worked as a civil rights lawyer. Okay, I'll put his obituary in the show yeah, notes. Yeah, Daniel people... Borg. He's an interesting guy, yeah. He uh, tried to make a difference. and I mean, there are some good people, I think, in the Congress. They're usually a small number. As you say, with time, they feel uh, they, they usually have to make a choice whether to compromise their values and integrity or not. And if they don't, they don't last too long. So I have to say, um, your most recent article, I guess I... You know, maybe it rang a bell, but I was pretty shocked that that um, you were suggesting. I don't know what you know. There's definitely two sides of the story, but that Hunter S. Thompson was murdered. I do remember, you know, there were some fishy things about his death, but I had thought that he had left some kind of suicide note. But you cast doubt on that. Can you tell me how did this catch your eye? Why is this something that you that you chose to write about this week? Because it's at the 18th anniversary of his death. Yeah, yeah, I always admire Hunter Thompson. I mean, he was a kind of idiosyncratic uh, figure, but as a writer, he was really brilliant. Uh, he was really candid and expressed himself well. He invented a style of journalism known as Gonzo journalism, where he kind of injects himself in the story, and he's a gifted was a gifted storyteller. And two of the most famous books that I have are, one was on the Hell's Angels, how I think he made his reputation with a series for the Nation magazine, and he kind of infiltrated the gang and hung out with them and exposed life in the Hell's Angels. And then uh, he wrote a great book called Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail, 1972. And he followed around Nixon and and, uh, both sides, the Republican and Democratic primer, uh, and he hated Nixon. I mean, he saw how corrupt he was. Uh, and you know he injects humor into the story, and he talks about his drug uh, exploits. But he also saw you know how phony, like all the Paul, not just Nixon, but like he has some good lines, and 
observation about like Hubert Humphrey, who was a Democratic Party candidate in, in the 68 election and then was trying again in 72. And he saw Humphrey as like hopelessly the song and it's just like political act. And I think the one person he liked was Jordan McGovern and he got trounced in the, in the 72 election. But uh, yeah, it's really just sharp observations, uh, that book. And I, I went assigned in some courses I was teaching. And, you know, it's a book that, you know, you like to read. I mean, the pages really turn, he turns into a kind of riveting story. And then he wrote the novel Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas that was made into a famous movie with, with Johnny Depp. And it's kind of about the underside, the counterculture, and the American dream. And yeah, at one point he ran for sheriff in, uh, in Colorado, in his county, and he was like running on a, uh, you know, a drug, at that time, a very radical platform, you know, legalizing drugs. And, uh, Actually, he shaved his head because he was associated with the counterculture. So he shaved his head so that he would have less hair than his opponent. So he could call him along, you know, because at that time it was like a slur. So he was long-haired hippies. And he was kind of one of the hippies, sort of. So he shaved his head. And then he attacked his opponent as a long hair. (laughs) Very clever. Very funny guy, yeah. Maybe he has long car with Jimmy Doors. Yes, yes. I like that, yeah. So so you feel... Uh, the thing that really got me thinking here is that because I thought, why would they go in and assassinate him then after all those years? But it was right after 9-11, right? I mean, long enough after 9-11 that he could figure it out, but not so long that it was hackneyed. Yeah, I mean, he still had stature and he became a legend because those stories uh, it made him famous and uh, he was, you know, kind of a celebrity. So. And, uh, yeah, I think he got a lot of the booze and drugs, and he wasn't as prolific a writer as he might have been. But but then I think he, you know, he kind of got back into it, and he was, he was actually a columnist for ESPN because uh, he loves sports as well. Uh, and But, yeah, he was working on a major story about 9-11, and, you know, he was a celebrity and a celebrity journalist. So if the legend Hunter Thompson would have this big story, I think it would be a huge, right. uh, huge impact and a huge ripple effect. So that could be the motive. I mean, it's pure speculation in this case. We don't know exactly what happened. I mean, perhaps he made some other enemies. I mean, he, he got into trouble uh, himself a little bit, so it's possible there were personal vendettas against him. But the, the, the evidence seems to suggest he was murdered. I mean, he was in a phone call with his wife, and he had a very young wife. I uh, was much younger than him and, you know, very attractive woman. And, I mean, he was, you know, I mean, what man who was like in his 60s. I mean, his health was good. He had a very young and uh, lovely wife. And his grand, uh, he had the one grandson who was visiting him while, when he was killed. And he was in the middle of a phone conversation. <laughs> yeah. All of a sudden, the phone went dead. And, I, mean, I mean, unless he thought that was, like, humorous, you know what I mean? Like, maybe that's the only thing I could think of is that. He didn't have a dark sense of humor, but even for him, uh, it would seem uh, odd. And, and, yeah, I mean, and, you know, he had, uh, you know, maybe he was kind of a showman and celebrity who liked the adulation. So, I mean, if he was going to go out, he would have gone out more with a bang than that. And then they, they found some suicide note, but it, it was kind of a fishy note and... It seemed that it may have been stay, a stage note. And he was like lamenting the end of, because he loved football and it was winter. So it was like it's the end of the season. But I mean, there'd be another season coming up. Yeah. It I just didn't even didn't get really that. I thought, I thought it yeah. was a metaphor. 
I thought when it said like it could so, be a metaphor, but let me read I it. mean it's yeah, there's an odd chance he was he did commit suicide, but it seemed really fishy and uh it seemed that he was probably murdered. And he said now, do you think this is credible, the report that he said to a friend that he was going to be killed and that they would make it look like suicide? Did you find that that yeah. report believable? Yeah. yeah, he said, I know how these bastards work. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so here's the, here's the note. And what's fishy about it is that only the title of the note uh, called Football Season is Over was in his hand. So he could have been writing something completely different. They found a piece of paper that had something in his writing and they made it into a suicide note. And that must have been kind of difficult to do if this was a setup because that's a weird title. Football Season is Over. And then it goes on to say, no more games, no more bombs, no more walking, no more fun, no more swimming. 67, that's 17 years past 50, 17 more than I needed or wanted boring. I'm always bitchy. I'm no fun for anybody. Uh, 67, you're getting greedy. Act your age. Relax. This won't hurt. I mean, it, it is a little bit of a stretch to start with the football Football season is over. And that's your, I mean, suicide, like even a, even a little child wouldn't be that short-sighted. Yeah. And I mean, if he's working on a major article on 9-11, you know, wouldn't he want to be around to see it come out? So... Right. I mean, you might as well. Like, that's what I used to say about my radio show. I was like, look, you want me to come out and people would harass me nonstop for not harping on 9-11 was an inside job. And there were just a few things I just didn't I didn't hit. And for some reason, I just felt like I will completely lose the audience if I say that because it was a conservative radio station. It was I had the same slot as Rush Limbaugh and I was on Saturday. So people would have the radio on and they're listening to Rush all week and then they would hear me. And they were just scared of te- of Arab terrorists. They were terrified of Arab terrorists. And if you said something like that, and they loved Dick Cheney, you just would, then nobody would listen to you anymore about anything. And I said, but on my last day, I will, like I would allude to it, but I'll like, I'll go out with a bang and I will do that. And actually it was in reverse order. Somebody did convince me to just, just lay it all out there. And I laid it all out about everything. I was like, this is what I think, this is what I think, this is what I think. And I will say, could have been a coincidence, maybe not. I was shown the door after eight and a half years, the week I did that show. But I I had thought in my mind, I will go out with a bang, you, you know, if I'm ready to retire. And that's just how you think, because you have this opportunity that you don't want to, you know, you it's just like Ron Paul and stuff. Like, do you really want to come out on island? Do you really want to get on that plane? Like, what what's the best use of your of of your assets at this point in time. And he would have to be, you know, it doesn't sound like he was a, a, somebody who didn't understand how to play that game, especially if he did the long-haired hippie thing. It's inconsistent. Well, yeah. And at that point, though, he had nothing to lose. I mean, he was rich. He was famous. He kind of marched to his own tune, so he could do whatever he wanted. Uh, although I guess that was the only threat is that somebody would kill him. Yeah, very interesting. And then another um, the uh, article you wrote before that. Uh, oh wow! You just put an article out right as we were talking. It looks like <laughs> you put an article was the Pentagon and CIA behind the COVID nineteen pandemic. I that just literally came across my screen. Well, How did that happen yeah. while we were talking? Uh, well, I I don't post them on the website. Okay. <laughs> Somebody else posts them. Yeah. 
Do you want to talk about that or um, do you want to talk about the other thing I thought was really interesting was this Gennaro Garcia Luna story, which do you want to wh- uh, well, tell us? They're both rather juicy. Yeah, maybe we'll start with the, the drug war. And yes. uh, you know, Garcia yeah. Luna was convicted last week and I mean, he's the highest ranking Mexican official to be convicted uh, in the United States. And I mean, he was paying huge bribes to the he would basically align with the Sinaloa cartel. And we see that the drug war was not a war on drugs, but it was basically a war you know, between drug uh, cartels. And the U.S. and Mexican government for many years were on the side of the Sinaloa cartel. Uh, and you know, the Plan Merida, the, the U.S. government invested billions of dollars in the drug war in this Plan Merida that started with George W. Bush, was expanded by the Obama administration. And we see, you know, the total waste of taxpayer dollar, you know, just like what we're seeing in Ukraine or Afghanistan, uh, billions of dollars are just wasted because, I mean, when you have the Mexican government aligning with one of the drug cartels, you're not actually fighting drugs. And, you know, a lot of those weapons, though, this operation Fast and the Furious, that weapon were actually given directly to drug cartel operatives. And yeah, the idea that they would trace them and that would be a way to to get them, but uh, they were just you know pumping weapons into the country. And you know, Tosh Plumley, I interviewed him. He was a former CIA contract pilot. And he said it had been longstanding pra- practice: the arms go from the United States into Mexico or South America, and the drugs come back. And and the CIA governments are protecting leading drug traffickers, so it's coming back. Uh, it's a big business for everybody. And talk about, yeah, like what we're saying about the 1%. I mean, this oligarchy, you know, a lot of the way, and the, the richest 1%, some of them are making their big money off, off the drug trade. And, I mean, they don't really want to stop it because the cartels put their money in the banks. as a major source of revenue for banks. And the, you know, the Mexican economy at various points could have collapsed without, without drug revenue. So they don't seem to really actually want to fight it. It's just a phony war. But it's it's billions of dollars, and I mean there are real casualties. That all those weapons just increase the violence, and the, the cartels are emboldened when they're supported by the government. They could do whatever they want. They can kill hundreds of thousands of people, and then you know they are you know the police come down hard on you know smaller time uh, dealer or drug users, spend years in behind prison, and uh, when the big shots are. are getting away and living in luxury. Yeah, one thing that came out of the trial was how these drug uh, uh, lords lived, you know, with huge mansions and zoos, and they felt uh, immune. I mean, eventually, time did catch up with Luna and a lot of the other ones, but they survived for a while and flourished for a while. So how did how did this... So I'm looking at this uh, sketch from the courtroom, and he is the, this is just amazing to me how high ranking he was. He was the secretary of public security. So there's pictures of him with the president at the time. And uh, he is in a, I guess, I don't know if it's U.S. I don't think it was a district court, but it's in, it's in a New York courtroom. Was he forcibly extradited? Like, how did he end up getting there? And, and why do you think that they threw the book at him? That's a good question. Yeah, I think he moved to Florida after he certain the Calderon government, <laughs> and now, you know, you have Lopez Obrador, uh, who maybe is trying to clean up some of the corruption. But, yeah, he ended up in Miami, Florida, I guess, because of his connections, and he bought a nice 
very nice home in Miami, Florida. And I think he even got an MBA degree. He was trying to, you know, look legit and stuff, but he had stolen a huge amount of money. Uh, and eventually the law caught up with him. I, I think they were going after him for a while because he was so overt in his case. Like, uh, you know, a lot of his associates had already been imprisoned. And, uh, you know, he, I think they had been on him for many years, even going back to 1990, because he had this staple of uh, luxury cars when he was still, you know, a relatively low-level police uh, official. Uh, and then he had an organization that was kind of like the American FBI, but, I mean, the pay wouldn't be high enough to have a staple of luxury cars. So there was huge suspicion about him going back many years. And, I mean, the U.S. government knew about that. That's, you know, the whole phoniness of the war on drugs is there, you know, this rhetoric... Uh, that they're fighting drugs, we're going to be successful, and we have the marshal all this billions of dollars, and yet they know a lot of the top Mexican police officials are, are extraordinarily corrupt. They even have the documentation of that, and there are reports about it, and they don't care because, yeah, they don't really want to fight the drug trade. And, you know, the CIA may be directly profiting off of it to fund, you know, covert operation, whether in Mexico uh, against uh, left-wing groups or other distant groups and, and other parts of Latin America. So they end up collaborating with these basically gangsters who infiltrate the, the government. I had done a lot of work on this Operation Fast and Furious, which was that uh, it was the drug running and the guy, it was, there was also like literally an an operation cash washer or something crazy that went alongside of that I don't even think it hit anybody's radar but it was about just funneling tons and tons of drugs of guns down to Mexico for the Sinaloa cartel and I believe it was related to trying to fix an election the presidential election I mean that was there was a lot of work done by a guy named Farrago on I think it was published on the truth about guns um, which isn't what you, I mean, that is a truth about guns, but um, yeah, I remember realizing that the whole gun drug trade at those levels I, and the amount of money that by keeping it a black market, the amount of money is just staggering, staggering. And it may even be taxpayer money because my sister was a drug addict for many years and she would not have been able to maintain that if she hadn't gotten welfare um, she was, was kept on methadone for decades and it didn't stop her from doing other stuff too. And uh, it was just crazy. And I, I, um, I think you can't overestimate the amount of money and power we're talking about in this. It could be the most powerful industry in the world. Most, mo and, and then you can talk about the legal drugs too, Pfizer and stuff. I mean, it's like the whole world is just covered with drug dealers. Yeah, well, that's true. And that's one reason, you know, uh, you know, people in power may not want to actually stop the drug trade because there's staggering levels of money involved. And as I was saying, yeah, you know, it gets filtered into legitimate economy. A lot of these drug traffickers, some of the top ones, if they're successful, they will survive. Then they start to launder into the legitimate economy and uh, present themselves as legitimate businessmen and develop legitimate businesses. And then they're, you know, the money is laundered and invested in banks. Uh, who make enormous profits off of this, so they don't want to see it come to a come to a stop. And think about the civil rights they're allowed to violate in the name of the drug war. I mean, it's really galling when you think that the that the government is in on perpetuating 
the drug trade and at the same time says that they have to suspend our civil liberties, asset forfeiture, things like that, because they they're just having such a hard time stopping the drugs. I mean, it's 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 infuriating. Yeah, well, and that that's another kind of con game is that they have these very lax civil forfeiture laws, so they they actually seize a lot of property from people. They see their car, their boats, uh, homes, and in many cases, it may be illegitimate seizures, and they're just making huge money off this. So uh, it's it's flat out robbery, and that's one reason police forces uh, support. You know, they become a powerful lobby group for sustaining uh, harsh drug control measures because it profits them enormously. And it gives legitimacy to get more you know, funding for the police and more heavy-duty military equipment. Uh, and as we know, there are tremendous abuses associated with the policing of the war on drugs. And they use you know, military-style tactics against drug traffickers, sometimes a you know, small-level dealer or drug users. And the draconian sentencing uh, for people yeah, who may simply need uh, you know, have an um, addiction problem or, or just need uh, treatment or help. Uh, instead, they're given years in prison, uh, while the big shots usually um, get off scot-free. So the double standards are really galling, and yeah, some of the human rights abuses uh, are, are also appalling. I yeah, about ten years ago, I went to a drug. Pol- uh, there's a group. Uh, I think it's funded by George Soros, but it's called Drug Policy Alliance. And I went to one of their conferences about ten years ago, and it was. I mean, there were a lot of good speakers and. During the conference, they had like, you know, they had a book display and, and they had like a video playing. It was like two day or three day conference. And throughout the whole time, it was just story after story of somebody who'd been caught up in the drug war and was like either falsely imprisoned or unjustly imprisoned or like somebody whose boyfriend had, uh, you know, had some drugs in their car and they were driving the car and they got like a 20 year sentence. You know, it was like a promising young person who's going to college and. It's just like so, uh, you know, all these sad stories of people given such long sentences, usually just like guilt by association or, you know, or some got killed because the police, you know, the way they police this is they use informants and then they're considered a snitch. And there's so much right. violence associated with the policing of drugs. And I mean, it's debatable uh, how harmful these drugs are compared to other things people consume. And it's, it should be treated more as a public health issue. And ultimately, the I think many argue the criminalization is what fe- fuel a lot of the huge profits of these illegal cartels. Uh, and that it would be better if it was put into the legal economy. That may be one key solution. Uh, I will say a couple of things. Uh, one is a guy named Anthony McLean was in a car. He was the passenger in a car in Pasadena uh, near, you know, not too far near where I live. And the car was stopped for a traffic violation, like something was wrong with the license plate. Anthony McLean had some kind of, I don't know, pot warrant out against him or whatever. And he decided to run away. He was just a passenger in a car getting stopped for traffic. The cop, shot him in the back as he was running away. By coincidence, that cop's uh, like lapel cam or whatever was not on, was not functioning. They, quote, found a gun 
that he that Anthony McLean supposedly had thrown the cut the gun was in pieces so he threw it and it burst into pieces I mean it seemed like something that the cop found on the floor of his car if you ask me and uh and and it was such a clear-cut case of that any cop whose cam is not working should like there should be a you lose your presumption of innocence you know what I mean it should that's what it would be like in the in, for a regular person and it didn't get the nationwide coverage as the ones that are more ambiguous, though, I think, because that causes more conflict. This was such a clear cut case of this guy getting shot in the back. And the reason he ran away and is dead, from what I recall, was just a pot thing. And they said there's something in his pants. I was like, probably pot, you know, although it's legal here now. So maybe it was some other drug thing. I don't know if it was really old. Like they do that sometimes. It's like, OK, it's legal now, but even old thing. But it was some some drug related uh, incident this guy had had in his past. And I think that he was shot in the back for it and got and the cop got away with it. Um, And I I would just consider somebody who's just using drugs or deal or selling drugs or whatever. That is somebody involved in arm's length transactions with other willing people. I mean, that that should not be a crime. And then it makes people not respect the. law because the law is unjust. It's fundamentally unjust. And then you see the double standard and it's very clear. Now, George Soros, why is he involved in legalizing drug? I would say there's this really annoying wrinkle about all of this that you look at the pot legalization out here and it it led to this. First of all, I don't think that you're allowed to just grow it pesticide free in your backyard and sell it for five dollars a bag like it would be because it's a weed. <laughs> it's a and weed, it's probably it's hard to actually eradicate weeds and it's literally weed. Um, and then they so but now that it's big business and you have to get licensed and taxed and all of that stuff, they it, well, there's just this proliferation of these artificial products that are, uh, you know, the vaping that's so or so powerful. I mean, I know people who've gone to the hospital because they were you know, whatever, old. And they went to a concert. They remember what it was like to smoke pot. Somebody hands them a vape and they're in the hospital because it was so powerful. I know two different people like that, that they just thought they were dying. And uh, I wonder if George Soros is behind it because ultimately that approach will be bad for people, will neutralize the political actor or something. I don't know, but it's annoying to me that Soros is on that side of it sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's it's a good cause. Yeah, it's unfortunate it takes a Soros money. Uh, I mean, maybe he supports that cause. I mean, he's not evil. In every, or perhaps his agenda is to divert people from you know economic issues into this area. That may be one of his goals. Um, but uh, I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know, but it's annoying to me. And I remember when the first state legalized pot, which was Colorado, and, and George Soros had uh, above board like you could actually see that he or one of his organizations gave four million dollars to the campaign and who knows what I, I mean i basically think him just he probably has such power over even he, i think he's notorious for actually targeting local government anyway so regardless of how much money he put in uh, over the table who knows what was going on under the table so i, I was always suspicious about that but let's we uh, I don't know how much time you have, but we certainly have uh, hopefully at least 10 minutes. Can you tell us about this article that you put out today? Was the Pentagon and CIA behind the COVID-19 pandemic? 
Sure. Yeah. And that, uh, there was a book published by Andrew Huff, uh, that I, uh, addressed and he, Andrew Huff worked for, um, Echo Health Alliance, which was an NGO, which got uh, a lot of money in federal grants, uh, for research. And they were, one of those grants was for research at the Wuhan lab. And uh, according to Hoff, they were involved in unethical gain-of-function research that he believed led to the manufacture of the COVID uh, virus. And, you know, the bat theory. Now there are others like Jeffrey Sachs of Columbia and a collaborator named Neil Harrison put out a paper. And I believe Sachs was initially part of some group that uh, is some government-connected group uh, that was starting to investigate the origin of COVID. I think he diverted from the government. He came to believe that it was manufactured uh, in a laboratory, in part because the, the bat story didn't make sense. They didn't find bats around Wuhan, and none had any, any marker of that disease, and I think a range of thousands of miles. Uh, so there's no indication that a bat near Wuhan. That was the official story originally. And Sachs, after he studied, I think he found some like human tissue in the in the virus chromosomes that would indicate uh, it came from a human that was manufacturing in a lab. And then he's gained a function research where they, uh, in theory, like Fauci has defended it as, you know, in theory, they're they're uh, cultivating viruses so they could better understand it and 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 stop it uh, or cure it. But many others say, well, it's really mad science. They're actually cultivating the virus uh, for use as bioweapons. And then this, you know, the motives can be debated as to why they would leak it. But, I mean, then there's another book I reviewed there uh, by Michel Chosudovsky, who runs the Global Research uh, website. And he says, you know, it's a global coup d'etat. They... They unleash the virus so they can expand social control so these pharmaceutical companies can make yet more money and that they can expand social control over the population and, and kind of test these draconian lockdown measures and see how far see how far they could go and what the population will, will accept. This could uh, sadly be the, 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 uh, the training ground or the, the forerunner of something even worse they may have been using this as some kind of social experiment. I mean, I don't know for sure. These are speculation, but uh, there is more and more evidence emerging that this was a laboratory-produced virus and that somebody leaked it. They tried to blame China as that theory, but it appeared it was Americans involved, probably American, because the Echo uh, uh, Huff says that his boss, Peter Daszak, had connection with the CIA, and the CIA was very interested in the gain-of-function research and was involved. So, uh, And then there are documents that have been exposed. Um, there's a, a Russian researcher named Sasha Ladapova, and she, uh, I don't think she, I don't know if she filed the Freedom of Information Act, but, or if she may have, and she's analyzed a set of documents which pointed to Pentagon funding for gain-of-function research that may have been part of the development of bioweapons. And that's the real purpose behind the manufacture of these viruses. And there is a history going back to the early Cold War, and I've I studied that a bit. Uh, the U.S. government uh, funded bioweapon development at the, uh, the secret Fort Detrick Army base in uh, Maryland, 
And that's where the uh, famous uh, doctor Frank Olson worked. And he was involved in the development of bioweapons that appear to have been used in the Korean War. And then he threatened to blow the whistle on that. And he, and he was very clearly assassinated in 1953, although they framed it as a suicide and that he had taken LSD. But it later came out that uh, the cause of death was a blunt force trauma of the head and that he had been murdered by two CIA assassins because very likely he was threatening to blow the whistle on the bio-warfare program and its use in Korea. And he was a CIA bio-weapons uh, expert and uh, scientist. So there's a history of that. So it's not so far-fetched to believe, given the nature of the experiments they were doing and get, given the hist historical pattern. Well, the a few things there. The, I always found the lab leak theory a little weird that they were talking about it in Congress and Rand Paul was after Fauci on that. and But they always made it sound like it was an accident. And my thinking was when they find out, when it's crystal clear that this was manufactured, they're going to have to have a cover story. And the cover story is for these kind of things is that we, we develop the most awful stuff in case the other side develops that exact same thing and we need an antidote, we'll have a head start, which is not worth the risk. In my opinion, that's not a plausible story. And it, because they are doing it, it is only, I, I consider it to be a purely hostile, totally unethical and immoral, but the, the truth will be told. And actually, the first time I had COVID, I had it twice. And both times it was so weird, so unnatural. I mean, I'm old. I've been sick plenty. You know, I used to get bronchitis all the time because I was a smoker. And I never felt anything quite like this, that whole loss of smell and taste. Like it was artificial. And so I knew that I thought that might come out. And so the whole thing seemed like a whitewash. And and here I think you're pointing out exactly what would happen. And I want to just say that it's rare that you get to use the word defenestrated in a sentence, but I believe Frank Olson was defenestrated, which means assassinated by being thrown out a window. But yeah, he was. Yeah, although at uh, first he was struck in the head. That may have killed either he was dead because uh, in the 90s, the sons uh, ordered an autopsy and they found he had suffered blunt force trauma to the head, uh, I think before he was thrown wow. out. Okay. But yeah, probably he died ultimately. That was maybe just to subdue him. And they, yeah. yeah, they threw him out the window and that's what killed him. Yeah. And what about, so you agree that this lab leak thing is, it, it's an intentional leak. Like it's a bioweapon. Yeah, it was used not against... a leak. Sorry, yeah. it was, yeah, it was deliberately leaked. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I mean, that would be rare for, how would this accident, I mean, there is a remote possibility that a worker got it who was working on these gain-of-function research got it, and that's how it spread, and they wanted to cover up uh, the kind of uh, research they were doing. So I, I, I would say that is a possibility. The other I don't possibility, think so. Yeah. Because of the other evidence, like Event 201, when they sat down on October 19th and plotted out exactly how they would conduct an 18-month lockdown for no novel coronavirus. I mean, it, it got to the point where you could predict what would happen next because of the blueprint they laid out. So I, I understand that that is theoretically possible from just a simple health point of view, but all the other evidence points to this having been planned, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I would agree too. Yeah, I agree with you. I just, I, I was still saying it is a slight possibility. Yeah, okay. Yeah, there is, but and My instinct would tell me you're right, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's just too right. much. But this whole idea of of bioweapons, I mean, they are, are we not 
I mean, have we not signed a treaty where we don't use biological and chemical weapons? Like, I, and, and I guess this is one of those cases that I remember you you might, I don't know if you ever looked into the Danny Castellaro assassination, man, that there have been a couple of books written yeah, about that, well, but boy, yeah. you could not find a more interesting case. And one of the big things, and it's still, there were st- a couple of, there was a murder of a guy coincidentally named David McGowan, not the David McGowan, but he was an investigator, law enforcement out in the desert about 10 or 15 years ago, who was assassinated for getting still too close to that Danny Castellaro thing, which was many years ago. And it was, it had to do with Wackenhut using the Cabochon Indian Reservation to do things that were illegal in this country. So, and the reservations don't do it anymore because they have casino revenue and they don't need to take that money, but they were exempt from federal laws. But now you look at Ukraine, you look at China, that's why we outsource this thing, which to me feels absolutely like uh, the reason it's illegal here is because it's immoral and it's against our treaties to go to set up a loophole that you can do it on lands that are not uh, under the jurisdiction of the U.S. federal government is to me, you know, it's obvious that they're intentionally doing something that we've all agreed was uh, unconscionable. Yeah, what what was the name of the person who got killed? Who was investigating Castellaro? David McGowan, like Dave McGowan. Dave, Dave McGowan is a famous um, author, a deep a deep researcher killed. who died of cancer not too long ago. Oh. But this guy was um, I'm going to look it up. McGowan. Uh, yeah, D.A. Sleuth among six dead in SoCal. Uh, 44-year-old Dave McGowan was found dead with a gunshot wound in the head in May of 2005. So that's not cool. But anyway, so yeah, that was... And and on your point about the Indian, yeah, and they've also done a lot of unethical testing on like, you know, the Marshall Island and some of the Pacific Islands that they claim sovereignty over. And I mean, the local population, they don't care about the health effects on the local population, just like the the Indians, so it's really sad. Uh, yes. I mean, the, yeah, they may say the ends justify the mean, but the ends are almost as, not more sinister <laughs> than the means. So. Yes, it's it, it does. It, it, the more you try to give the benefit of the doubt, the harder it gets because not only the evidence just points to these things as being matters of policy, but what what they're doing is so on their face immoral that you you have to believe they're just they don't have that morality anymore. And they, and actually, I believe that uh, uh, Brzezinski said Zbig said uh, back in the day in that 1971 or 72 America in the technotronic era that or around that time, maybe it was in some other article, but that there would emerge an elite. And I'm sure it had already emerged where our standards of morals just do not apply to them. And I would go further and say, yet they they make sure that we maintain those moral standards because in the end, you can't have a compliant or complacent population who isn't actually governing themselves. So they need us to have those strong sense of right and wrong so we will govern ourselves because they could not do this all by force. It's all psychological, but they are cynical about it, let's just say. Yeah, they. Uh, if you study, yeah, their thoughts and thinking pattern and thoughts, yeah, they have the utmost contempt for uh, regular people and for their intelligence and th- and think they're so uh, so above everyone else. And yet, the policy they carry out lead to disaster after disaster. 
for humanity. And I mean, wars like uh, you know Iraq or Afghanistan, uh, the you know even the Cold War. I mean, it really was detrimental to a huge uh, portion of humanity. I mean, it's really maybe beneficial only to the uh, you know the one percent elite you know who can profit off these conflicts that they cause. Uh, so it's really just self self interested rather than them. You know, they they kind of fashion so the grand you know Brzezinski was this grand chess master and look at the chaos and disaster he caused you know the grand chess master armed the mujahideen the most extreme elements in Afghanistan and that empowered fundamentalist Islam led to 9/11 attacks and countless deaths uh, so I mean you know how strategic really was that I mean there was ample opportunity for coexistence you know he was so in his case, he hated Russia so much. And you know, he came from a family. I did an article about him and his family. You know, his father had fought in the, uh, and then his grandfather fought in the Polish-Soviet War of the early 20s. And they hated the Russians. So, I mean, he was like... They were nobility, right? Yeah. The, the family came from Polish nobility. You know, and the Polish hated the, the Russians. and But, I mean, it clouded his judgment completely and led to... Um, you know, terrible policies for for the United States. I mean, so yeah. And there's a book I read by um, Greg Grandin on Henry Kissinger, and according to his assessment, and Grandin's a very good historian, was that Kissinger was wrong about every single foreign policy of his career. And I mean, so yeah, he fashions this genius from Harvard, and this you know, Brzezinski, the chess master, and 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 Kissinger is this allegedly brilliant grand strategist. And yet he was wrong about everything, and he, and he caused terrible misery for people like in Cambodia. I mean, they bombed the hell out of Cambodia to the extent that they drove the entire population insane and fueled the rise of the Khmer Rouge that the U.S. ultimately even supported. And like Chile, I mean, they backed a fascist coup there that uh, just devastated the society. So, I mean, how how intelligent is this, and, and how is it really serving American? interest who's creating hatred for the united states i mean the blowback we're already seeing it in our lifetime the blowback on american society is tremendous and it's going to grow worse so i mean they're 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 enacting suicidal policies for their own country and i mean it, it refutes the myth of this this image they have of themselves as this, this chess master and that's why common people the common decency needs to prevail these uh, sinister elements and, and elitist elements who would yeah do the most depraved thing that are right really out of a nazi playbook when they're talking about these human uh, you know perverting science to create viruses and that's only something that the nazis would have done yeah they this reminds me of like ben bernanke ben bernanke was the the Fed chairman who oversaw 2008, this, you know, helicopter money, zero interest rates in perpetuity, all of that stuff. And I could draw really a very, you know, connect dots very easily from that and even before that a little bit to today us experiencing so much inflation it was his decision to make sure that the regular people suffered for the malinvestment of the, of you know, the banks and stuff that he would not allow to go under and it was terrible policy, and yet it's supported as he's considered a hero, a genius, whatever, because you know, and because the propaganda machine will 
take the viewpoint of the elite. And what annoys me so much is that the people, the, the people who consume that propaganda really have not fully understood that it is us versus them, that the elite have a totally different interest. Our interests are not aligned. They have no connection to their own people, to the nation state or whatever that they are elected to represent, that it's an international power elite. And and they what they describe to us as heroes are heroes for them, but not for us. And I just, I cannot wait for people to wake up and maybe people are starting to wake up. I mean, I'll give you the last word on that. Do you think people are beginning to see through this, especially after COVID and who knows what else, maybe after your experience at the anti-war protest? I mean, do you think there is any chance of of a growing brush fire of, uh, of people waking up? Yeah, I think uh, I think things have changed. You know, in the 1950s and, and early 60s, I mean, I think one game changer in in the United States was the Kennedy assassination, and not a lot. You know, a large number of people didn't believe in the Warren Commission, and that was kind of the beginning of the loss of innocence in the post World War II era. And I mean, since that time, we've been fed lie after lie, from the Gulf of Tonkin to the WMDs, uh, just some of the big ones, the Gaddafi. You know, and Viagra to the COVID lies, uh, to the serial lies, the chemical weapons, to the Ukraine lies, myth, uh, the the claim of a unprovoked invasion by Putin. So it's just lie after lie, and I, I think yeah, there is now a large sec- sector of the population that does not trust the government. Uh, but that uh, I think the problem is you had the legacy of McCarthyism in the United States that wiped out a lot of the. Uh, social movements in the country, any you know, left-wing movement was uh, uh, decimated, a left-wing party were destroyed. Uh, so the political left has been eviscerated and destroyed, uh, and that's historically the left has offered a, a counterweight and a countervailing ideology, uh, socialist ideology, which would promote the nationalization of industry and, and break the back of corporate power. Uh, so with no left, uh, you know, many people, uh, they don't really, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're skeptical, but they don't join any kind of orga- organized political group. And on the right, you have the libertarians, and they have some influence, but it's not at the level of a, a large-scale political party that can actually challenge the dominant political party at this time. So I think, yes, yeah, so it's, in answer to your question, yes and no. Yes, more and more people... Are, are skeptical, they don't trust the government, they see through the lies, a lot of the young people. But how does that translate into social and political change? And that has to come through powerful political organizations. And I should say the left was decimated in part because the labor movement was destroyed from during the McCarthy era. And that was in the past a vehicle for the working class uh, to express themselves and promote their interests within the political system. And the economy altered as well, uh, more to the service sector, you know, computer technology, which is less conducive to worker solidarity and, and uh, you know, identification as part of the working class. So the demise of unions, I think, is important as well. But, yeah, it's the lack of political organizations. That, that's what's needed now to challenge uh, the power that be. Uh, and I think those may develop in a new way in the coming years. But we're still a, a starting point with that. And I think new groups are forming, yeah, with kind of hybrid ideology like the People's Party, 
Uh, so those are promising developments that we need now for people to coalesce into large organizations that could wield an impact on the electoral system. Uh, and then that may occur with time. I do think that one, the one thing I feel like is, is powerful, and I think that's why Ron Paul is a big threat, was just having the ideas in people's minds moves that Overton window, the Overton window, which is the acceptable spectrum of issue positions that a politician can have and stay in power or retain the support of constituents, that if if enough people are awake, that Overton window gets narrower or broader or whatever, and it slows down the political machine a little bit. Or, you know, it doesn't, it's never going to redirect it because we know what they want. They want total, you know, domination. But if you can slow it down, you know, it's not a done deal. I, I do believe that. So I, I think it's important to continue to raise awareness. But I agree with you that yeah. some, some, action i want next time and i would add that yeah i mean these if the social movements grow they can get some of their own candidates into congress and they can start wielding wielding the impact you know and and the people feel that they're uh they have the support of large masses they would feel more emboldened to speak out and try and challenge uh, the power that be on those issues whereas if they feel they have to go because i think one of the things that politicians feel they have to get campaign funds from corporations or powerful interests, so they're going to scale back on what they say. Uh, they're not going to speak out to alienate any donors. But if they're large grassroots movements or effective political organizations that could actually get candidates into office without corporate backing, then we'll start to see more people like in Congress speaking out and uh, more laws uh, to counter some of the terrible laws that they can't now passes. That's true. And what, what I want to next time, I, I never, never suggested a topic because I really just like to read your articles and I, I'll continue to do that. But uh, which, by the way, people can find on covertactionmagazine.com and I will put them in the show notes on monicasdeepdives.com. But next time I might ask your opinion on internationalism, on the UN Agenda 21, on on local initiatives being influenced by globalist powers but i'm gonna i'm gonna save that for next time and we'll see if we can find some common ground on that too and with that i will say thank you so much jeremy kuzmara for coming uh as always to you have such a wealth of information on so many different articles that you write and um things that you dig into and the assassination stuff and also your activism i mean you're on planes going around and uh, being on the ground on these protests, and I appreciate that. And I might uh, ask you also if I can use some of your pictures. I'll certainly put your article about the protests on my website, but I loved your pictures. You were very there. So thank you for your time and all of your efforts. Great. Yeah, thank you. And uh, my pleasure. Yeah, feel free to use the pictures, and I could send them to you or, yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks, everybody, for listening and joining us. This is Monica Perez, and you have been listening to a live dive on Deep Dives with Monica Perez. Monica Perez.